0: If Ken Paxton comes to Trump's rescue, will Trump come to his? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com. Feeling just a little bit under the weather, Jeremy. I've got my um, I've got my Kleenex here. I've got my chloraseptic. I've got cough drops with the kind that uh, have the uh, you know soothing. Uh, of the nasal passages, you know, it's, it's got that uh, wonderful Hall's relief. You see that? It's not a uh-oh. commercial or anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. are are we joining paid me, for this? <laughs> and you know, I'm,
0: and it's not, uh, you know, it's not a serious thing. I don't have a fever or anything. Not everything is coronavirus. Um, uh, Jeremy Wallace is at the Houston Chronicle, and he's going to have to carry the show today because I don't know if my voice is going to last. I'm going to do my <laughs> best. All right. Um, where are we with coronavirus right now uh, in Texas? We're looking at the national headlines where uh, we do see that we could have shipments of the vaccine you know, going out to people starting to be distributed as soon as next week. I mean, they have really hit the gas uh, as far as the FDA getting the you know emergency use authorization and all of that um, with cases, hospitalizations, deaths in Texas. What does it look like?
1: You no, know, yeah, that vaccine can't get here fast enough. Uh, yeah. yeah, we're going to hit twenty four thousand deaths. You know, this weekend probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as of taping this, you know, today we're at twenty three thousand seven hundred fifty eight people who have died from COVID nineteen in Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to put that in perspective. That just since August, you know, August twelfth, I was looking back. Uh, we've added you know fourteen thousand seven hundred and twenty four Texans who have died, uh, which is astounding. You know I, I can't even fathom what that looks like uh, in terms of the number of deaths. But you see that happening. You know obviously we've had that surge in El Paso. that's kind of getting a little bit better. Uh, but you know things are completely out of control in Amarillo, uh, Dallas, as we saw this week. Uh, you know, had to, you know, roll back, you know, restaurants and bar openings, Mm -hmm. Uh, Laredo, it's really bad, you know, Waco, it's bad, you know, it's like, it just feels like every corner of the state right now, so... Uh, but the key number here for people to remember is that you know, you know we're, we're going to hit 24,000 people who have passed away from this.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we'll keep uh, an eye on it uh, as we move forward here. And we'll also have more coverage next week, by the way, here on the show about what it's going to mean for the way the legislature uh, is going to operate because everything on that seems to be a question mark at this moment. Um, big story in Texas and national politics this week. The attorney general of Texas – is, and this is the way I understood it, Jeremy. I'm not a lawyer, as you know, and I don't play one here on the <laughs> podcast. I'm trying to meddle in the election results in four swing states, right? As I understood the filing from the attorney general, he's asking the United States Supreme Court to be able to step in here uh, and have Texas intervene in the way other states handled their elections, right? Yep. And a lot of this, all of it, uh, I guess, stems from the different changes that were being made in response to coronavirus as we were approaching election day and different states were doing different things, Uh, including Texas, by the way. Yes. um, You know, he's not suing uh, Texas, obviously, but we did have our governor making changes to the way that people could vote, including an extra week of early voting. And I actually saw some conservative critics uh, of Governor Abbott. Wondering aloud whether or not Paxton had any issue with what Abbott did, because that seems to be the argument here that states yep. made quick changes and that they were not allowed to do that. This has been called the big one by the president. You know, they've had all of these legal challenges. How many legal challenges are there? Are you able to keep up with it? I totally lost track a long time ago when they right. were, were like. You know,
1: one for 12, I kind of lost track of it. I have no idea (laughs) where that – they they might be like one for 50 right now, as I know.
0: It was not going well, but the president said that this is, quote – the big one. And we now have, I think we're up to more than a hundred Republican members of the U.S. House who are supporting this. Notably, uh, not some from Texas, including Chip Roy. Uh, Roy, who used to uh, work, uh, you know, in that whole uh, Paxton Ted Cruz circle, uh, you know, as one of their staffers, says this is a dangerous threat to federalism. There's also been some speculation because Paxton has his own legal problems, his own legal challenges. He's been under indictment for securities fraud uh, allegations uh, for going on six years now. And more recently, as we reported uh, you know, here on the show and at QuorumReport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, Paxton is also now accused of uh, corruption, bribery, and other potential crimes by members of his uh, top staff, some folks who actually left the office uh, just recently after making those allegations. So, there are those who wonder, is Paxton trying to curry favor with President Trump in case he ends up uh, you know, convicted of federal crimes? <laughs> Could he get a pardon? Um, what was it that Eric Erickson said about this, by the way, the, the conservative commentator who was not impressed with Paxton's lawsuit? Yeah, this isn't just Democrats that
1: are having a problem with his lawsuit, obviously. Yeah. Uh, But you know, Eric Erickson, who's a longtime conservative commentator out of Georgia, Mm -hmm. you've probably seen him on CNN, and you know, he's had a radio show. He has blogs out there. He's the guy who created Red State. Uh, Well, anyhow, it's like yeah, he says uh, you know about Paxton's lawsuit. He said his lawsuit is just more performative leg humping by someone (laughs) desperate to curry favor with President Trump. You know, that, again, this is a conservative. This is not like your. Bomb throwing, you know, lefty, you know, attorney general from like New York or something.
0: Right. And I don't think it's so much um, as it is with other politicians like Ted Cruz, who finds himself in the middle of this. Apparently, President Trump asked Cruz if he would represent the president if this goes before the Supreme Court. We don't know if the court's going to even hear this. Most legal experts have said that they would not. Um, But because of the political reality and legal reality for Paxton, I get right back to this question. Is he doing this because he thinks he might need relief in the form of a pardon from President Trump? Well, check this out uh, from John Engel, uh, his report at KXAN Television here in Austin.
2: How can anybody trust those elections for now or ever?
1: Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a loyal ally of President Trump, was indicted five years ago on felony securities fraud charges. And in October, several former aides to Paxton accused him of bribery and misusing his office to benefit a wealthy Austin donor. Some filed whistleblower complaints after they were fired for raising these concerns. But Paxton says, There's been no talk of a pardon from the White House.
0: I've had no discussions with anything about anything like that. All right, so at least he felt the need to weigh in on that question. Uh, Democrats are similarly unimpressed with this. This is Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. Remember, Fetterman was also the one who took issue with the lieutenant governor here, Dan Patrick, about uh, whether there was any voter fraud uh, in Pennsylvania and other states. Well, Fetterman says he's not worried at all about what Paxton is trying to do.
1: No, I, I don't have
0: any concerns whatsoever. I
1: mean, let's let's be honest. This this is all just an arms race among Republicans to see who can simp harder for the president. I don't take any of this seriously.
0: I'm going to let the listeners Google the term "simp." All right, <laughs> they, they, he said, "Who, who, which of these folks can simp harder for President Trump?" Um, another Democrat, the Attorney General of Michigan, Dana Nessel, had maybe some even stronger words for paxton what he's trying to do
1: i've never seen anything like this i don't know that i've talked to anyone who has seen anything like
0: this before it is so incredibly outrageous and i will say this uh directly to uh general paxton if he's watching you know who voted for you in michigan general paxton no one literally no one uh, so stay in your lane and you know stick to trying to disenfranchise voters in your own state. Don't come to mind. Oh, those are Democrats. I expect yep. those comments from them. I was a little more surprised by what you read there from Eric Erickson. Oh, listen to this. What does our senior GOP senator from Texas think about it, about the suit itself, and what does he think about Senator Cruz possibly representing President Trump in this case to try to overturn the election results?
2: Well, if the if, uh, if the if the Supreme Court grants a review of the of the petition that has been filed, uh, I can't think of a better advocate than uh, Senator Cruz. As you know, he's he's got uh, great experience arguing cases before the Supreme Court of the United States. This a former Solicitor General of Texas, and uh, that's just on top of his uh, private sector career after he clerked for uh, William Rehnquist. On the Supreme Court.
0: Okay, but what about this lawsuit itself?
2: I saw a summary of the complaint and I'm skeptical of its chances for success. I don't begrudge anybody uh, uh, pursuing any legal remedy or asking a court to review it, and that would include President Trump. I don't begrudge him that at all.
0: Here's where I think it gets really interesting, Jeremy. Cornyn makes this argument. He says, if Paxton was to be successful in suing other states over their election laws. What would keep other states from suing Texas over some of its laws that are maybe not even related to elections?
2: But if you think about the consequences of one or more states challenging the constitutionality of actions in those states, uh, which are reserved to the states as sovereign, uh, sovereign entities themselves, you know, it's it's uh, it's a little frightening to think about the implications. For example, if you're from Illinois and you think uh, there ought to be a confiscation of all um, semi-automatic uh, weapons, could you file a lawsuit in the Supreme Court of the United States and challenge the constitutionality of Texas law on that regard? I think it's easy to see that uh, this would be uh, a bridge too far.
0: Yeah, it's just not the way these things work when you're challenging the way that states have, handles thing, have handled things, right? I mean, um, let me give another example. What if, this is maybe a little easier, what if uh, folks in California had a problem with the fact that Texas has open carry of firearms and they wanted to file a suit, the attorney general of California files a suit in the Supreme Court and says Texas shouldn't be able to do that, to allow people to walk around with a gun on their hip. Would they really battle that out? That's not the way that works. Um, the way it works is somebody was standing. that would be somebody in Texas – Right. would take it to federal court in Austin or Houston or wherever they would challenge this. And then it would make its way up the federal court system to the United States Supreme Court if it got that far. And we've seen that many times, right, with uh, various statutes, abortion laws and other things that were passed by the Texas legislature. Some of these things, as you know, Jeremy, that are, um, you know, initiated um, at the Capitol, you know, from the moment the bill is filed, it's going to be in federal court at some point. Right. We've seen this over and over again.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if you look at like, you know, beyond California, I look at some of those, you know, attorney generals in places like in New England uh, where th- those offices have traditionally been, you know, uh, huge political platforms for people to try to make some noise. You know, if you go mm-hmm. back years ago, uh, you know, New York's Attorney General Elliot Spitzer at the time made a uh, made himself a household name at one point because he was going after Wall Street yep. so aggressively. And then had, you had know, a guy like Richard Blumenthal, the you know who's currently the Senator of Connecticut. When yep. he, he was Attorney General, you know, it was you know trying to make news, you know, and it's like what better <laughs> way for those guys to make news now if this suit is successful and even. Getting heard by the Supreme Court. What's to stop the Connecticut, you know, uh, Attorney General from suing Texas, like you said, over gun laws, on or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah anything
0: our, you want. You know, our you abortion think restrictions. It. You you name it. Name
1: exactly. It. It's like what, how you're handling. You know, we don't like how you're treating. You know, women in minorities in your state, mm-hmm. and we're gonna say we want to sue you over your, you know, SB four or your bathroom bills or whatever else mm-hmm. for rest of eternity. You know, we're going to have others getting into our business and making us spend money to defend ourselves in a lawsuit. You know, is that what we want?
0: Some folks might argue that it should work that way. Cornyn's making the point that it just never has worked that way, right? And that's why he doubts that this would go anywhere. I thought one other thing that Cornyn said yesterday on a conference call with reporters was pretty interesting. Listen to his acknowledgement that this whole fight over the election is just about over.
2: I think uh,
0: we're now coming
2: to the end of that process. And I do believe, that we will have a... Um, it looks like uh, the runway is is uh, very short uh, for the Trump campaign. and uh, And uh, I think it's looking increasingly like... Joe Biden will be inaugurated as the next president on January the 20th.
0: Cornyn having to exercise his role here as the elder statesman in the GOP in Texas, uh, this thing is just about over. While some of these others are stomping their feet and you know trying to appease a base that is the Trump base, Cornyn just got re-elected to another six-year term. Um, you know He's going to be around. Uh, president Trump is not going to be in Washington. Uh, president Trump, as we mentioned previously, has already talked about maybe running again for president four years from now. That in itself is sort of an acknowledgment that he lost and that Biden is the president-elect and he's going to take office uh, in January. Um, there was a, a really interesting speech that you pointed out um, on your Twitter feed from uh, Will Hurd Uh, The retiring congressman, who I think is also wanting to be seen as one of these sort of uh, statesmen uh, in the Republican Party, calling for bipartisanship. Uh, It was his farewell address, a five-minute little speech uh, that you linked to there on uh, C-SPAN. You watch C-SPAN for fun, don't you? Oh, I, I love it. <laughs> you can't get enough of it. You can't get just, enough of it. It's complete, he, unfiltered
1: speeches. So like, you don't have to, like, you know, have any CNN or Fox News guy right. telling you what you're about to hear. Mm-hmm. You just turn it on, and there's Will Heard saying blank.
0: Yes, Hurd talked about some of his legislative accomplishments during his time in office and about working across the aisle. And he said this right here was his bottom line. Don't treat bipartisanship like a four-letter word. The only way big things have ever been done in this country is by doing them together. What else was he saying there in that speech, Jeremy, as he talked to his colleagues, Republicans and Democrats alike?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. You know, he he talked about, like, all the bills that he had passed out over the years. You Mm -hmm. know, granted, he's only been in Congress for six years, which isn't really a long time. And those people typically don't have a lot of influence and maybe aren't even national, you know, figures. Mm -hmm. Hurd kind of became a national figure, you know, because of several reasons. One, he was one of the few Republicans, you know, who you you would, you know, look for – on any vote to see if he switched sides, Mm -hmm. you know, because he's from kind of a more moderate area. You know, Mm -hmm. he never won that district by more than 50% of the vote in that entire time. He was always like, you know, 48, 49% uh, winning by the skin of his teeth. Uh, But he also was the only you know you know black member of congress who's a republican you know right. for the last for certainly the last 2 years and so th- he had a lot of weight on his shoulders you know to kind of talk about these issues and you saw him on national tv far more than you would typically see somebody who's only been in congress for 4 to 6 years so mm-hmm. but he talked about about the one thing that got away though you know which is immigration reform you know, yeah. dealing with the dreamers, you know, the, the you know, he, remember Will Hurd's congressional district stretches from San Antonio, El Paso. Mm-hmm. It has about 800 miles of border in it. And so if there's one, you know, he's the only Republican who represents any portion of the U S border with Mexico.
0: Right. Right, now. And, I, and I think he's uh, that district, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, is representative of the largest section of border with Mexico. you, correct? you. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you're mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, was aware of what he had been frustrated about with the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and he was trying to come up with some legislative fix for that. And of course, it's something that's supported by Democrats and Republicans alike. It's one of those things that can't make its way through the legislative process, but if you poll it among Americans, I mean, it's, you know, it would win in a landslide, right? Yeah. It's it's one of those things. 80% or more say that those young immigrants who were brought here, you know, quote, through no fault of their own is the cliche that people always say. We really are talking about people who were, in a lot of cases, brought here just as infants. Yeah. Um, and so they really had no say. And, and they don't know anything. Most most of them don't know anything about their country of origin. Most of them have spoken English for most of their lives and all of that. Um, that is politically an easier one than a, you know, a, a complete overhaul of the immigration system. Uh, but Hurd had talked, and I was kind of hard on him in some of my comments about this previously, that, that he had said that the way to get it done is to just go ahead and do what they call a discharge position a petition, which is to get enough signatures from House members to just bypass the committee process and put it on the floor. That's probably not the way, and this is why I'm critical of it, Probably not the way to achieve a lasting change on something is to try to bypass the Speaker of the House. That's probably not going to work, but I do understand uh, his frustration. Uh, They are making some news in Congress at this hour. The name of Fort Hood is going to be changed is that right what is this
1: yeah yeah and finally uh, uh, as part of the national defense authorization act you know which just you know finally passed the senate and by enough votes to overcome any veto if president trump would do to do it which he kind of had threatened about before because of the base renamings. you know this is where they're going to rename some of the bases that had been named for confederates uh you know and 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 fort hood is one of them you know fort hood you know is named for you know a, a guy from kentucky Uh, who ended up living out his life in Louisiana. So there's very little interaction with Texas. He's not even considered a very successful uh, general, you know, when he was in the military. Mm -hmm. So it's always been kind of a weird puzzlement that he kind of represents, you know, one of the biggest military complexes in not just Texas, but in the nation. And so, you know, look for Fort Hood to change out. uh, And, you know, it's also interesting that, you know, out of that bill, you know, the, you know troops are going to get a pay raise, 3% pay increase. And it was also the last defense authorization bill from Mac Dornberry. For those of y'all who, you know, cover or follow Texas politics, you know, you know he's been a staple in military issues for 25 years and really kind of gave Texas huge input on the biggest issues of the day when it came to the military. It'll be interesting to see who kind of fills that role with him gone. And it's like we don't have... You know, a guy who knows the military nearly as well back and forth like you know, uh, Thornberry has these last 25 yeah, absolutely. years.
0: Absolutely. By the way, there's also some breaking news out of Houston this afternoon. Do you remember the story that we covered earlier in the year uh, at HoustonChronicle.com and com about the ghost candidate, the phantom candidate uh, in the House race on the Democratic side, um, yep. a chairman in the House by the name of Harold Dutton, a longtime Democratic lawmaker. He did secure reelection, but not before he had to go through a runoff. And as you remember, there were these allegations that the third candidate in the race who forced the runoff between Dutton and this other guy, Jerry Davis, who was a city councilman, uh, that that third candidate was not a real person, that, 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 that no one ever saw this person campaigning, that no one had ever, you know, uh, you know, no one had any evidence that the person was real. I wish I was making that up, but I'm not. Well, this yeah. afternoon – it's a little hard to even describe it. This afternoon, uh, KPRC Channel 2 in Houston uh, has learned that a former candidate for state, re- a state representative – Richard Bonton, has been indicted by a Harris County grand jury on multiple charges, including election fraud. Uh, He, along with two other candidates, were in the race against incumbent State Representative Harold Dutton, who's held that office since 1984. Uh, There were charges of uh, conspiracy to commit tampering with a government record, tampering with a governmental record and election fraud. And the most serious charge, we're told, is tampering with a governmental record that is a uh, felony. There was a ghost candidate. In this race named Natasha Ruiz, that's the person who appeared on the ballot, but no one had ever seen this person. And so we'll keep track of that and see what happens with that uh, investigation. It was not the first time um, that I had heard of a phantom candidate in Houston politics. I remember there was one, I think about a decade ago, and it had to do with the race that eventually ended up uh, seeing the election of uh, Senator Joan Huffman, who's from Houston. Interesting stuff. Uh, we heard Will Hurd talking about bipartisanship a little bit earlier and saying, you know, bipartisanship should not be a four letter word and Republicans and Democrats ought to work together and really embrace that idea of bipartisanship. You know who doesn't care about that at all? Who's oh, that? Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. <laughs> Is this the new rule in the Texas Senate that however many Republicans there are going to be, that's how many Republicans it takes, or that's how many lawmakers it takes to, to move legislation. Is that correct?
1: That feels like where we're going, you know, you know we, we used to have a setup, you know, since 1947, there was always like there was a required supermajority to get something onto the yeah. floor. Well, as Republicans have started to lose their supermajority over these last few years, we just keep changing the rules, you know, or we, you know that would be Dan the Patrick Senators and mm-hmm. the Republicans in yeah. the Texas Senate.
0: Well, Patrick uh, now has a threshold of, what, 19 votes to be able to bring something to the floor. Um, And he has just come out and said that he will push for the change to be made to take it to 18 because that's how many Republicans are going to be there in the Senate. Um, The way he did this, the way he announced it was interesting. Um, (laughs) He had not taken a position yet in this runoff election for state Senate up in – up in uh, North Texas, uh, between Shelley Luther, the rebel salon owner, uh, the one who defied governor Abbott and his, uh, his coronavirus orders and Drew Springer, who's the agriculture chairman in the Texas house. They are in, and you've seen the reports on this, Jeremy, a very heated, I mean, there is a new accusation between the two of them every day, it seems, uh, with Springer saying that, you know, she's uh, hosting super spreader events, uh, that she's going around spreading the coronavirus to people. Uh, She and her campaign are now saying that he is uh, guilty of abusing his office uh, because he didn't want to. And he's violating some election rules, ethics rules, uh, because he was going to do something for a constituent. And then this was the allegation that he was going to do something for a constituent. And then, um, and then he found out that this constituent had endorsed Shelley Luther for the Senate seat, and so then he said he wouldn't do whatever it was you know, that he was going to help the constituent with. They said you can't do that. Okay, so we'll, we'll see what, um, what shakes out on all of that. One thing to know, one thing to keep in mind when these elections get really ugly, and this is the way I approach it, especially in the last couple of weeks of an election, everything is taken with a big grain of salt. With what's being said between the candidates, especially especially when there are a bunch of nasty accusations, we'll see what happens. Um, but Dan Patrick, instead of coming out and endorsing one of those two, because who knows how it's going to work out? You know, Patrick's not sure. You know, it's going to be Luther. Is it going to be uh, Springer? Um, Patrick, instead of endorsing, he called on them to endorse the change that he wants to make in the Texas Senate of taking it from nineteen votes to eighteen votes, which they, of course. They both did and Jeremy, of course in Dan Patrick's Senate, that would be the only thing or at least the most important thing to him that would be uh, you know a, a priority moving forward because he wants to be able to move legislation. You know the Texas Senate and the way it operates, what you mentioned the two-thirds majority that used to be required before 2015, um, that was what made it um, a deliberative body that is unlike the House of Representatives that is you know, yep. because in the House, and this is the way it's supposed to work in Washington and, uh, and in Austin. It's the House is supposed to be you know, more like the boiling pot of the water. You know, The ideas are flowing, and it only takes a simple majority to pass things unless you're talking about a constitutional amendment. But the Senate is supposed to be you know, like the saucer that cools things down. This is the way that the dean of the Senate, uh, John Whitmire, always talked about it uh, before 2015 when they had the two-thirds rule. And then they took it down to three-fifths, which is also the threshold in Washington, which works so well right they they no problems in Washington, um so they no. took it so they took it to three fifths in in the texas Senate um but it's still even at three fifths it causes them to slow down a little bit on some of these pieces of legislation, and as Whitmire had said over and over again, there's no piece of legislation that's perfect. you can always improve upon it. And what these greater thresholds for passage of legislation, what it actually does, see, there are conservative activists who will say that this is just a roadblock for passing conservative legislation. The intent of it is not to block any certain ideology in what they're trying to do. The intent of it is to make the senators actually talk to each other and come to some consensus before they just go on and pass something, right? And that's yeah, that, and that's that, the that's key. A
1: very- yeah, that's the big point right there. It's like trying to get them to kind of work with one another. You know, that, that's kind of like you know the whole Texas thing. You know, you, you go back to our founding. We've been you know, we're just naturally distrustful of government. And businesses big anything big, you know Texans you know have a healthy skepticism mm-hmm. of, right? you know, so in this case, it forces you know the legislature you know to slow down what's going to get passed mm-hmm. through, right you know it's like make sure there's enough checks and balances that if you want to pass something, it better be something most people yeah. agree with but it, but you know it, what, what was happening with the way the Democrats had just picked up another seat, they picked up three mm-hmm. now since 2018, and so they had enough votes. Yeah, you know, or they currently still yep. do. You know, until the rule has changed, they have enough votes technically to stop another bathroom bill or to stop uh, another SB four, the uh, the Show Me Your Papers right. law that mm-hmm. you know Democrats you know you know, you know hated. Uh, there are all kinds of issues that they could slow down or stop or keep from getting to the floor, and that's bad news for Dan Patrick <laughs> and the Republicans who feel like they have a conservative mandate. You know that they need to charge yep. through. Before the state gets any tighter, you know, so it makes, we could see this coming. We just hadn't heard him say, you know, flat out that when we get to the beginning of January, he's going to push to, you know, further make sure the Democrats cannot slow down
0: their Yeah, and he had previously said that um, he would consider doing that. And then, of course, the election results uh, came out the way that they did. I would also say that it's not just about partisanship. Um, You know, the, the fact is that you have certain pieces of legislation. I mean, take things like. Um, you know, water issues and infrastructure issues. There are certain things that uh, pit different parts of the state against each other. It might be Houston versus Dallas. It might be rural Texas versus urban Texas uh, or, you know, a tension with the uh, suburbs. It might be something about public education um, and, and uh, school vouchers uh, is one of those things that divides the urban and rural members uh, as well as and, and the suburban folks have their opinions about that as well. Um, so it's not always just, you know, conservative versus liberal or Republican versus Democratic, right? Um, it, it's that you have to have consensus not only on uh, those ideological fronts, but also on the different geographic areas of the state. and the fact that they might want to weigh in on something um, and make sure that they're getting, uh, you know their piece of the pie uh, as it were when it comes to legislating. One other nuance I would add to this is that even though there will be 18 Republicans in the Texas Senate, Patrick can't count on all of them all the time either. Right? He's got, and, and yep. on a host of issues. Again, it's not just conservative versus liberal. Um, you know, it, you may have somebody from the panhandle who doesn't agree with what folks in Houston and Dallas and uh, Austin want to do. Uh, that's just one example. Um, but I think that the lieutenant governor, and you were picking up on this, the lieutenant governor also gave himself one more little insurance policy to go along with this as well, which is he elevated. Uh, one uh, key Democratic ally to a key position—that's the vice chairmanship of the Senate Finance Committee. It's hard to overstate how important it is to be on Senate Finance and and to be leading Senate Finance. They are the ones who write the budget for the state of Texas. It's a quarter trillion yep. dollar document written over a 24-month horizon. It's the priorities of the state. You know, it's. Um, whatever programs you want to see funded. Uh, It might be things that are specific to your district. Uh, Eddie Lucio Jr., the senator from uh, South Texas, uh, was put in that vice chairmanship. Uh, And he's somebody who's voted with Patrick a lot anyway, even on some of these socially conservative issues, right, which some folks find kind of interesting, although, as you've covered very well, Jeremy, the politics in South Texas is a little bit different from – you know The Democrats down there are a little different from the Democrats in other parts of the state, so he can afford to vote with Patrick on some stuff. But I have to think that um, if you have an 18-vote rule, which Patrick's on uh, on track to try to push and get passed, it's up to the senators, not him, by the way. Um, but if he gets the 18-vote rule, plus he's got that one more little insurance policy, having Eddie Lucio in a key position, if Patrick loses one of his Republicans on one of these key votes, he can go to him and say – Hey man, you're on the team, right?
1: Yep. Well, it's interesting too. So, like, Lucio's going to be replacing uh, Chuy Mm -hmm. Hinojosa, who's from McAllen, who's on on you know already the the vice chair. So he's replacing one person from the Valley with somebody else from the Valley. It's going to be kind of really interesting to see kind of how that goes over in the Democratic Caucus, and you know, even within the politics of the Valley. It's like it seems like it's pitting. two guys from the same neighborhood, essentially, against one mm-hmm. another. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Yeah, absolutely.
0: There. And uh, we are going to dig more into what the legislative session is going to be like uh, next week here on the show, and we'll kind of wrap up what kind of year it has been. I know you have a lot of thoughts on that, Jeremy. I, I've i got yep. to get some rest. I, I'm not feeling well. I, by, by next week, I'll be 100% again. I guarantee you. you I go. guarantee you. 100%. 110. 110%. My uh, my voice somehow made it all the way through the show, so I appreciate your help. All right. The plugs now. If you enjoy the show, you know you do, even when I sound terrible. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Jeremy's work appears each and every day at HoustonChronicle.com, and you can check out what we do at QuorumReport.com. We would love to have you as a subscriber. Just go there to the homepage at QuorumReport.com, click subscriptions, we'll get you signed up, and we will see you one more time in 2020 next week.